You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual that anti-gay baking or bakers was a thing or anti-gay florists. We only found out about anti-gay bakers and florists after marriage equality came to all 50 states. There is one particular anti-gay baker, Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, that is now world famous because their case landed before the Supreme Court. Masterpiece Cake Shop denied a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. They sued. Colorado Civil Rights Commission said the Masterpiece Cake Shop was in the wrong. And yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the anti-gay bakers. There's no denying that yesterday's Supreme Court ruling in favor of anti-gay cake baking was a morale booster for opponents of LGBT civil equality everywhere. You only had to look at Twitter for a split second to realize that. Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority decisions in every major pro-gay rights case over the last 25 years, Romer, Lawrence, Windsor, Obergefell, he wrote yesterday's decision. Not Alito, not Thomas, not Gorsuch, but saving grace, silver lining, the decision was, quote unquote, narrow, as everyone keeps saying, meaning it was decided on procedural-ish grounds. Take it away, National Center for Lesbian Rights. Today's Supreme Court decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop is a narrow, fact-based decision that does not break any new constitutional ground or create any new exemptions to anti-discrimination laws. The court reversed the state court decision only because it found that the record in this case indicated that the Colorado Commission's deliberations were tainted by anti-religious hostility. Today's decision leaves intact the long-standing principle that states can require businesses open to the public to serve everyone, even when some businesses believe that doing so violates their religious beliefs. All right. How long that principle remains intact depends on how long conservative but usually pro-LGBT civil equality Kennedy, age 81, remains on the court, along with 85-year-old liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who dissented from Kennedy's decision yesterday, and 79-year-old Stephen Breyer, liberal justice, who voted with the majority in the masterpiece cake shop decision yesterday. If Donald J. fucking Trump gets to replace any of these three justices with another Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas, Roberts, we can kiss that long-standing principle that states can require businesses open to the public to serve everyone goodbye. Along with the woman's right to choose, what little is left of labor rights in this country, what little is left of voting rights in this country, what little is left of environmental regulations in this country, the religious right along with the entire GOP political and media establishment, they lined the fuck up behind Donald Trump once he got the nomination because they wanted the courts and they didn't care who handed the courts to them. The right is not obsessed with purity. Look to evangelicals and their support to Donald Trump. No, no, no. The right is obsessed with power. Just enough people on the left, however, are obsessed with purity. So in addition to listening to voices on the left insist that there was no difference between Gore and Bush, excuse me, No difference between Clinton and Trump. We were told that Hillary was the real warmonger, that Hillary didn't support same-sex marriage early enough, and that securing a liberal majority on the Supreme Court for decades to come, yeah, that wasn't a good enough reason to vote for Hillary Clinton. So here we are, praying that Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kennedy live forever. 
not everyone on the left learned the lesson of 2000. The lesser of two evils is, you know, less evil and maybe less evil deserves your vote. But here's hoping everyone on the left got the message in 2016. Time will tell whether we learned that particular lesson too late. Footnote. Important to emphasize, religious bigots who run businesses that are open to the public did not get the okay to deny services to LGBT members of the public nationwide. It is, however, currently legal for businesses to discriminate against LGBT people in 28 states. Could wind up being legal in all 50 if Donald Trump puts one more justice on the Supreme Court. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, the for free Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long, twice as many questions and no ads. Evan Urquhart from Slate joins us to talk about trans issues. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight woman from New York, and I wanted to ask you your opinion about a situation I'm currently in with my ex. We had a pretty messy breakup. After almost a year, he told me that he didn't want to be in a serious relationship with me. So I ended things with him because I wanted to be exclusive and saw a future together, but he didn't. Then after I ended things, he continued to talk to me and has since wanted to get back together multiple times. Each time I've told him that I don't think we're good for each other romantically. There's way too much heartbreak and drama, but I'd potentially like to be friends and in each other's lives in the future. We have a lot in common, have great conversations, and despite the messiness of our breakup, I think he's a really great person. He reached out a few weeks ago saying that he wanted to start hanging out as friends, but when I responded that I'm not there yet and need a little bit more time, he responded that in a nutshell, I should know that it's all fake and that he'll always love me and he's only pretending to want my friendship forever. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about him. I really can't stop. It's a problem. Um, And I'm debating getting in touch. Do you think this is a terrible idea that will lead to further awfulness and hurt on both sides? Or should I just kind of give it a go? I guess I'm a little confused because before the breakup, you could see this guy as a potential long-term partner, someone that you could build a life with, and he wasn't ready to commit. He wasn't ready to be exclusive. He couldn't picture that future that you could picture. So you broke up with him, and suddenly, as is sometimes the case, as often the case, he can see that future, the future he's missing out on now potentially by not being willing to commit to you basically on your schedule. And he's come to his senses, but now you're not sure if you get back together with him because... Dot, 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 because ulterior motive, because he wants to be with you now in the way you wanted him to be with you or wanted him to want to be with you then. And that is somehow disqualifying. I guess I don't understand the logic there. Sometimes you break up with someone because they don't want what you want. And I don't think that people should engage in strategic breakups and create a lot of drama But sometimes when you break up with someone, it brings them to their senses. They realize what they've lost, and they're suddenly willing to make the commitment to you that they weren't willing to make or didn't feel like they had to make when they had you previously on their own terms. So, yeah, I do think you should give this guy another shot. You have great conversations. You have a great deal in common. There's a little bit of drama. There's a lot of drama in every long-term relationship. There's always going to be drama. There's always going to be conflict. I don't think you should take him back if he's a drama-generating, conflict-generating machine. Drama and conflict 
come. You don't want to be with somebody who makes that shit up, who gins it up, who cranks it up. But it'll come. So the fact that it's there isn't evidence that you shouldn't be in this relationship. You shouldn't be in this relationship, any relationship. It's needlessly there if it's invented. But nothing you said about this guy disqualifies him in my reading or listening. Nothing disqualifies him. Good convos, a lot in common. I'm assuming you had good sex. You could picture a future before. And now, thanks to the breakup, thanks to that zap, thanks to that thunderbolt you threw, he can picture that future also now. So, yeah, date him again. See where it goes. Dating him again doesn't mean you have to commit to being with him for the rest of your life. If you begin to date him again and he begins to play these weasel games around commitment and exclusivity and not wanting what you want, then you can end it a second time. Hi, um, I am a 21-year-old bisexual female in a relationship with a male for about a year and a half. And I guess I start out right off the bat, I'm a virgin. Um, I will not have sex until married because my mom was very young when she had me. And I'm, you know, just scared of pregnancy. <laughs> um, and I have never orgasmed, neither by myself or with a male, including my boyfriend. I have tried toys. Um, I, I recently have tried lots of different toys. Um, he has tried different things and nothing's working. And I don't know um, if it's because when I was younger, I was very sheltered and my parents, uh, you know, I didn't have internet until I was 16, 17. So I don't know if that has an impact in it because I never had this time to be able to find myself and masturbate and figure out things. Um, I'm also scared that it's going to be, I have to wait to have sex in order to have this orgasm. And that's not going to happen for a couple years. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if I should just stay calm and, you know, don't panic like I currently am. Uh, I should just stay calm and just, you know, ride the wave and wait for it to happen. Or if there's, if you have any advice for what I can do, because my uh, libido has slowly, slowly dropped because I feel like um, I don't feel fulfilled after I masturbate or after we um, indulge in foreplay. It just feels like a waste of time. Like I could have been doing 10 other things while this happens. And I, and I don't want that to be a hurt on our relationship. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm not not doing what I should do. <laughs> but if you have any advice, that'd be great. Women were having orgasms before the internet was a thing. Early access to the internet, access to the internet in adolescence is not the linchpin. It's not what a woman or a girl needs in order to climax in young adulthood. Women were having orgasms before the internet was a thing. Uh I'm not sure what to tell you. Your fears of pregnancy rooted in your mother getting pregnant very early seem a little irrational considering there are IUDs and morning after pills. And even now, two years into the Trump administration and the Gorsuch Supreme Court still access in most places to abortion. So you have options to prevent a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy should you get pregnant? If you don't want to have vaginal intercourse for reasons and you want to wait until marriage to have vaginal intercourse for reasons, I support the choices that you want to make. I'm not trying to jimmy a dick into your twat for my own pleasure purposes because I take no pleasure and have no purpose in that exchange. But I think you need to sit with why you're really afraid or really reluctant or not yet ready for vaginal intercourse and what that means because the reasons you cite, again, seem like a bit of a reach and, and a little too simple. And so maybe it is that you don't feel connected to the person that you're with and so they're not the person that you wish to have this experience with for the first time 
or something else. Something is up and you need to explore and dive deep. And you are being sexual. You say you're a virgin. You're having foreplay if you're attempting orgasms. If he's having orgasms and you guys are generating those orgasms together, you are having sex. You are being sexual. I would say that you're not a virgin even if you have not yet had PIV, penis in vagina. My husband has not yet had PIV and he is definitely not a virgin. A lot of women sometimes have a difficult time tapping into their orgasmic potential in part because they aren't encouraged or made to feel entitled to masturbate in adolescence in the same way that young men feel entitled to masturbate and the culture kind of supports and encourages young men to masturbate by centering young male masturbation as a thing that young males do and not a thing that young ladies do and young women do. Often masturbation is discussed as a male-only thing in terrible, terrible sex ed classes that young men and young women are herded into in high schools and middle schools. It is really important for a woman to know what it takes to get herself off and that takes some exploration and that takes some doing. Something that most men don't remember from back when they first began masturbating because it's so early in their lives is that they masturbated for a long time without climaxing, that they stroked themselves and it felt good or they humped a pillow and it felt good. And often what men will tell you if they really think about when they began to masturbate was that they were doing this thing regularly, stimulating themselves, pleasuring themselves. And then one day they were doing that thing and suddenly all this white gunk came flying out of their dicks and they were like, what the fuck was that? So they were engaged in self-pleasure for a long time before they had that first orgasm. So the fact that you are now engaging in self-pleasure and you've not yet had that first orgasm doesn't mean you're defective or broken. You are on your way. You are tiptoeing down the orgasmic brick road. And it might take a little while for you to figure out exactly what kind of stim or penetration or vibrator or fantasy play or whatever needs to be plugged in all those things need to be firing for you to climax just like all those boys back when they were 12 or 13 years old were doing these things and it took a while for everything to snap into place and for them to realize that if they do it in this particular way for this particular amount of time with p- particular focus on this particular spot, they're going to come. So give yourself a break, smoke some pot, get a Hitachi magic wand, maybe get an IUD, calm the fuck down about pregnancy. You have options and – Give yourself a break. That's the most important part of that ramble, that rattle off for there at the end. Give yourself a break. Some women take some little time, takes them until they're 23, 24, 25 to really have that first orgasm, particularly if they didn't start exploring, doing a deep dive on self-pleasuring until they were 21. Hi, Dan. I'm a Washington State native living in a more conservative East Coast city And I'm going to a trade school, so there's all ages. I'm 24. One of my classmates is 19, and she just told me that she's pregnant. And I was like, wow, that's so exciting. Like, are you excited? And she was like, no, not really. But it's not abortion is not an option for her. Her words, not mine. So I'm just wondering if I should let that decision be up to her and her family and her boyfriend. I mean, obviously it is, but if I should give her some like guidance as a strong woman friend, what would you suggest? If someone said to me, abortion is not an option for me, I would say to them, why is that? I would ask a follow-up question. I would not 
dictate anything to them at that point. I wouldn't tell them what I thought they should do. I would just ask them how they arrived at that abortion is not an option for me position, particularly at 19 years old. And if it was religious hoo-ha, I would continue to draw them out. Often though, what you'll hear from someone, particularly a young person who says something like abortion is not for me, if it's not religion and family, it's bad people have abortions. Abortion is a terrible thing that terrible people do. A lot of young people aren't aware of how common abortion is. One in three women have had an abortion, that most people who have abortions are already parents, already mothers, that abortion is safer than carrying a pregnancy to term, that it's not unsafe. Often people have these misconceptions, these prejudices about abortion because they've overheard adults lying about what abortion is or they don't know the adults in their own life who've had abortions who are not terrible, rotten, awful people. That this 19-year-old came out to you or is telling people that she is pregnant and that it is an unhappy accident, she may be casting about for some input from people in her community outside of her boyfriend and immediate family and framing it in a negative way, saying abortion is something I want, it's not anything I could ever do, but oh God, guys, hey, 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 I'm pregnant. Here goes the flare up. I am pregnant and it is not a good time for me to be pregnant, but I would never get an abortion because abortion's wrong. Right? And sometimes what they need to hear is, no, abortion isn't wrong necessarily. Abortion is often the right choice for an individual person, and it was the right choice for me when blank. If you yourself have had an abortion, you can open up to her about your abortion. It is important, particularly for young people who may have been sheltered by their families or in their faith communities, to hear from other women about their abortion experiences. And that abortion can be a positive, affirming choice in a young person's life or a middle-aged person's life. And it needs to remain a legal choice. So she opened the door to this conversation when she told you that she was pregnant, when she told you it wasn't a great time for her to be pregnant, but she's going to go ahead with the pregnancy anyway because abortion isn't an option for her. You can explain using I statements. Don't tell her abortion is the choice that she must make. But explain to her why abortion is a choice that you have made, if indeed you've had an abortion, or a choice you would make for yourself if you were in a similar circumstance, and why. Could open her eyes. And there's nothing bullying or prescriptive about you sharing the choice that you would make in her circumstance. She shared with you the choice she, at the moment, intends to make in her circumstance. You can explain to her why you would make a different choice. Hi, I'm a 50-year-old cisgender heterosexual male. Um, I've been seeing my 40-year-old girlfriend for about a year and a half, and she now lives overseas, which has been challenging to see each other, but we see each other every two to three months. We have very frequent sex, like every three or four hours we have sex, the best sex I've ever had in my life. Um, she starts to get really sore after like day three, and even though she's still aroused and wants sex, once she has it, she's even more sore and she gets a bit resentful. So by day seven, you know, she's still doing it, but very sore and very uncomfortable. Is there anything that we can do to prevent this soreness? She's very naturally wet and doesn't need lubricant. So it's not like that's the problem, but it just, she just gets sore. Second thing is she's been proposing to make me experience what she experiences by pegging me um, every few hours or even once a day for the duration so I can get a sense of what she feels. Is that actually analogous? Like, is getting pegged in the ass actually analogous to having 
sex, vaginal sexual intercourse. When I'm challenging straight boys about their very limited definition of what sex is, those straight boys who think sex is PIV, penis and vagina, vaginal intercourse, and anything that isn't PIV, anything that isn't their dick slamming in and out of that hole, a hand job, a blow job, mutual masturbation, rolling around, anything that isn't PIV is some sort of tragic consolation prize. I often tell these boys, if every time you consented to sex, and a lot of these boys bring this all up to me in the context of why don't women put out the way men put out, the way gay men put out? My gay male friends have such an easy time getting laid. It's harder for straight guys. And I tell them, if every time you said yes to sex, your ass got fucked, you might say yes to sex a little less frequently than you would otherwise if there were options. So I kind of agree with your girlfriend here. If you are fucking her every couple of hours, every three or four hours, for days and days and days when you guys get together, she's going to be sore. And perhaps reluctant to say yes to the next PIV round. And maybe if you got fucked in the ass once or twice for every three or four hours for a week, you would understand why that's a problem. So I would encourage you, you know, if you don't want to get pegged, and I'm not into revenge pegging or sensitizing pegging. If pegging is a mutually pleasurable idea and both people want to experience that, I'm down. If pegging is about teaching someone a lesson... I think that's a bad place for pegging to come from. I think that that isn't pegging that should happen in the world. I don't think pegging, unless you're in a DS relationship, should be used as punishment. Rather, I would encourage you, encourage you both, to fold some other activities into the PIV to give her poor pussy a break. That is what she's telling you. When she says, look, maybe I should fuck your ass a few dozen times so you understand what I'm going through. It's possible that she is consenting to more PIV than she is comfortable having. I think it's not only possible. I think that's exactly what is happening here. You say it's entirely mutually consensual and you're both loving it. And she's saying, I am so sore. I'm ready to fucking fuck your ass to punish you. So maybe all those times that she's consenting to the PIV when you want it, she's giving it up for you and it's not that hot for her after the first 10 or 11 times so how about some mutual masturbation how about some oral how about some you going down on her for an hour and a half how about some rolling around how about some solo masturbation side by side while you make the fuck out give her pussy a break and then maybe she won't be fantasizing about breaking your ass in half hey dan i'm calling from michigan Last night, when my boys were visiting their dad for their weekly visit, I went into my 15-year-old son's room, and he's aware that it's open to random searches because we've had a few drug issues and tobacco issues in the past, So, and things come up missing. So I went in there, found some tobacco, some different vaping products, and then when I looked in a backpack, I found a personal pussy, a portable pussy, and he's 15. So, yeah, I get it. He's going to use stuff like that. I mean, I wish we had stuff like that when I was a kid. I mean, we just used our hands, but whatever. Anyway, my main concern is where is he getting this stuff? I'm going to confront him about the tobacco, but do I say something to him about this personal pussy? And there was, like, some vibrating cock ring thing in there too. So I put it back in his backpack and put it back in the back of his closet. 
and I don't know what to do, Dan. Do I confront him about where is he getting these items, or do I just let it go? I don't want him to be feel ashamed. I don't want to embarrass him. I've already had the don't choke the chicken too hard conversation with him so that it doesn't ruin his, you know, future relationship. So I could really use your help. I was just sitting here thinking, aren't all pussies portable? I mean, almost all pussies, they're all portable. Your son has a particular kind of portable pussy. You gave him the talk about death grip syndrome. You gave him a talk about not masturbating so hard or with such a grip that when he transitions to partnered sex, he isn't then incapable of climaxing via the subtler sensations of pussy or butt or mouth. And he went and acquired for himself a simulated pussy, maybe to practice on, maybe to masturbate with instead of the death grip because he was taking mom's advice. So mom, butt the fuck out, shut the fuck up, stay the fuck out of that particular backpack when you're searching his room. Don't say anything to him about the pussy. Don't say anything to him about the vibrating cock ring. I know you have these fantasies about some sort of Colombian sex toy ring gang, MS-13, selling pocket pussies to little straight boys in middle America. That is not where he got his hands on these sex toys. Either they were swiped from somebody else's house, somebody's dad's pocket pussy went missing and it changed hands three or four times at school, or, and I think this is much likelier, have you ever given your son an Amazon gift card or any sort of gift card? If you get on Amazon, you can find pocket pussies for sale and vibrating cock rings and handcuffs and tit clamps and all sorts of other sex toys. And if you have an Amazon gift card, as so many teenagers do, you can order these things and have them delivered to your house. And all you got to do then is make sure that you intercept that package first. Or if you don't want to have them come to your house, if mom's always there on the porch when the packages arrive, you can send them to somebody else's house, to a friend's house, where that friend is always there when the package arrives. And mom is never home when the package arrives, or dad is never home when the package arrives. There is a way for your son to get his hands, for everybody's kids, to get their hands on sex toys now without having to go down to that street corner downtown where the Colombian sex toy lord gang sells pocket pussies to innocent 15-year-old boys who wouldn't be able to access pocket pussies otherwise. That's not how this is going down, Mom. Got it from a friend, ordered it from Amazon with the gift card his grandparents gave him. That's how we got those masturbatory aids. Stay the fuck out of your kids' masturbatory routines. You give them advice. You gave them some good advice and gave them my advice. I appreciate that. That's good advice, I think. That's why I give it all the time. Then you butt the fuck out. So, mom, don't bring up the pocket pussy. You can discuss the tobacco. You can discuss drugs. Yep. If you have a deal with your kid where you can search his room because of past infractions, search his room for the things that are infraction-related, like drugs, like tobacco. That pocket pussy, not in any way infraction-related. Leave it alone. Hey, Dan. I am a cisgendered female from Maine. I'm calling because I was in a relationship, a heteronormative relationship for three years. And then I broke up with him because I found out that he was lying to me about his sobriety. 
it's been about four months, and he seems to be on the right track. He's sober, and for some reason, our sexual chemistry is coming through now. We've kind of agreed to keep it just sexual. It sort of formed into a dom-sub relationship, me being the dom. I don't know if this is wrong. For some reason, I'm feeling that way because my family and friends are not approving of him because of him lying to me, whatever. But we have this insane chemistry sexual attraction, and I'm wondering if that's wrong, if I should stop this, if it's bad for me. He told you he was sober then, and he was lying. Now he tells you he's sober, and it's the truth, and presumably you have some independent way of verifying that this time it is the truth, and he isn't lying to you this time about being sober. So should you see him? Yeah, if sobriety was the reason you couldn't see him before and he's sober now and you like him and enjoy spending time with him and enjoy this sexual relationship and the DS dynamic and he's sober, sure, you should see him with sobriety being a condition of continuing to see him. Sometimes when we're with people who have drug and alcohol problems and we break up with them for that reason, they will sober up just long enough to get us back and then they will start abusing drugs and alcohol again once they feel that they've put us in a place where extricating ourselves from the relationship again is going to be very difficult once we've, say, signed a lease together, moved in together, scrambled our DNA together, gotten married. When you take somebody back after they sober up, long engagement. Don't move in with each other right away. You don't have to hold them at arm's length emotionally. You can open your heart back up to them, but logistically, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're staying with someone who is suddenly unsober again because leaving them or asking them to leave would be too much of a burden. One caveat, one little asterisk here at the end. You say that your family and friends disapprove of you being in a relationship, even a limited sexual DS, fuck buddies-ish relationship with this person at all. I'd like to know what your family and friends know that you didn't share with me in your call. If there was a lot of drama, if there was threats, if there was emotional violence or physical violence, if there was other shit that came bundled with the non-sobriety that your family and friends were privy to and witnessed and had to help you through, and they're concerned about your getting involved with this person again, then I'm concerned about your getting involved with this person again. But if they just can't get over the fact that he had a drinking problem and he lied to you about it, or a drug problem and lied to you about it, if that's really the only issue here and he can demonstrate over time, the last four months, the next four years, that the sobriety is now and forever like cats, then I support you continuing to see this guy, support you being in relationship with this guy again even. But that's a really important caveat. It's a really important asterisk and you need to think about it. You need to think about what your family and friends are telling you, not just what the cocksucker with the relationship podcast is telling you. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old gay guy living in Seattle, lived in the city for a long time. Uh, about three years ago, I, uh, I quit drinking, and so that means I don't hang out in the gay bar scene anymore. Um, I've tried, and people, when they get about two drinks in them, that's when I either have to start like taking care of them, or they just become kind of annoying. 
so I stopped doing that. My question is, where do I meet gay guys or gay queer people in general and have like a sense of community? How do I build that outside of the bar scene? You know, uh, gay male culture seems to be so, it's like the bars are the magnets and, and, and you know, uh, that's just where everybody gathers. And I kind of miss that. But at the same time, I can't really participate in it. You know, that raises the whole question. Let's say if I hook up with somebody at a bar, I don't drink, they drink. You know, that means that like, I'm technically taking advantage of them. Uh, if somebody doesn't remember consenting the next day, then it is rape. Uh, and I understand that. And I find it like repulsive. And so I don't want to partake in that. If the only place you're looking for connection with other gay men is in bars, then the only place you're going to find those men is in bars where most people, but not all people are drinking. You go to the bars. It sounds like from time to time you don't drink. So not everyone in the bar drinks. You're there. Look around. Who else is nursing a club soda and lime? I'm one of those people nursing a club soda and lime when I'm in a bar because I hardly drink at all anymore. But get out of the bars. There are gay political organizations, gay social clubs, gay sports organizations, gay kink organizations. There are all sorts of organizations and clubs. There's a gay skiing and snowboarding club. There are all sorts of organizations, social, political, religious, and otherwise, for gay people. If you don't like what you're finding in the bars, don't go to the bars. You have options outside the bars. Yes, the bars are a gathering place, but they're a less important one, actually, as time has gone on. There are fewer and fewer gay bars, in part because of dating apps. We all used to go to the gay bars because that's where we found each other. That was the space, the only space we could enter where gayness or bi-ness was the assumption and the norm. And now we have computers and phones and apps and dating sites and scruff and grinder and squirt and recon and whatever else we have all of those spaces that we can enter virtually as well and the bars have become less central in the bars though if you are going to go to the bars there are going to be other people there who are drinking moderately drinking not at all it is possible to go home with someone who's had a couple of drinks and not rape them if going home with someone who's had a couple of drinks means you raped that person then most of the sex that happens on any given saturday night in the united states is rape or sexual assault. And I just don't think that's true. There is a line past which consent is not meaningful, where someone is so drunk that they can't offer you their meaningful consent, that someone dipped their finger in a drink doesn't render them incapable of offering you their meaningful consent. And I would hope that you as a stone cold sober person in that moment, meeting someone at a bar who's had a couple of drinks, you are in a really good position to assess whether someone is merely tipsy, just had a couple, or so obliterated, if attractive, that tonight's not the night that you should go home with them or invite them home with you. That maybe tonight's the night where you swap phone numbers and you text them tomorrow. But don't be one of those people who goes to the bars all the time to complain about the bars and goes to the bars all the time to complain about how the bars are the only place that you can go to meet other gay men because that's just not true. The bars are perhaps the most easy and obvious place to go. They require no advanced planning. If you want to get involved with the gay skiing and snowboarding club, you're going to have to get in touch. You can have to find out when their events are, when the meetups are, and go to them before you go on your first snowboarding adventure as opposed to just rolling into the bar when the door is open, which is easy. So you're going to have to make an effort. 
to meet gay men and find gay men and find gay community and find gay culture outside the bars. But it is possible to do. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis uh, heterosexual woman living on the East Coast. I'm 30 years old. And I'm in an open relationship with my partner of about almost 12 years. Um, so we've been together since we were 18, which is a really long time. We've been open for about half of that time. And generally, everything is great. But I'm I'm wondering specifically about oral sex. Because I have not once, A, I've never had an orgasm from receiving oral sex. But I also just have never really enjoyed it with my primary partner or with anybody else. And it's become this weird complex for me where I, if it's happening, I'm super concerned about them, convinced that they must be miserable and hating every second of it. So that alone, I think, is enough to psych me out and not allow me to have any sort of like physical enjoyment. But it's also created some issues with my partner because he has no confidence in his, like, his ability and I have no confidence in my ability to tell him how to please me in that way because I actually just don't know. And I feel like it's something that women talk about is like, oh, my God, if you don't, if your man doesn't give you orgasms for moral sex, then, you know, if he doesn't love going down on you, then get out. It's just like this thing that I just feel like I can't even, I don't even really talk about because it's such a thing for me. So I guess my question is, what do I do about that? Do I continue to try to figure it out and let it keep happening, try to get past the discomfort and see if I can cross over into some kind of enjoyment? Do I just say no to it? Are there people who just don't like receiving oral sex? I don't want to be one of those people, but maybe that's something. Maybe that's a real thing. But that would be such a bummer because from all I hear from people and movies and television, it's like heaven sent. And I just haven't experienced that at all. Everyone's allowed to have their personal preferences. You don't have to like everything. You don't have to like a thing that everybody else supposedly likes. You're not the only person out there in the world who doesn't like oral sex. There are guys out there who don't like to have their dicks sucked. And a lot of those guys are really hesitant to tell their wives or girlfriends they don't like to have their dicks sucked because isn't that something every normal guy is supposed to love? It's the be-all and end-all for normal guys getting their cock sucked. And a lot of people have a hard time coming out to their partners as something other than normal. So you're not the only one. But I want to challenge you because the reason you cite for not enjoying oral isn't about the sensations. It isn't about how it does nothing for you. It's anxiety. You say that you feel anxious because you assume the person eating your pussy, the person going down on you, must be miserable. I'm not telling you to go get your pussy eaten or to set that aside. I am telling you to think about why you believe that a guy who's eating your pussy has to be miserable. Now, maybe you've had some guys go down on you because they felt like they had to and they didn't enjoy it and they weren't any good at it and they did it badly in hopes that you wouldn't expect it from them or ask them to do that ever again. That is a strategy that shitty manipulative people will pull on their partners in bed. Or maybe you believe that your genitals are gross and ugly because that's the cultural messaging that you were given. And so you worry that if a guy gets his nose down there that he is going to realize that your genitals are gross and ugly and leave you or he's just going to stay down there long enough to pleasure you. But it's not something that he enjoys because he couldn't enjoy it. How could he possibly enjoy that? I am here from talking to a lot of straight guys over the course of my adult life land to tell you 
that there are tons of guys, tons of straight and bi guys who love to eat pussy. It's their favorite thing. There are guys out there who would rather eat pussy than have PIV intercourse. So this leap you're making, this assumption that anybody with his face in your crotch is miserable, that's not true. Empirically, for a fact, I can tell you that that is not true in all cases. There are definitely some guys who will go down on a woman who don't want to do it but will do it to be decent and good sex partners. Some of those guys make a valiant effort and actually do a good job. Some of those guys do a piss poor job. They don't want to have to keep doing that job. But I think those guys are vastly outnumbered by the guys who love to eat pussy. So you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You don't have to do anything that makes you miserable or anxious. I would just ask you to think about why this makes you miserable and anxious. And if you're with a guy who wants to go down on you and he tells you he loves it, Maybe you should believe him. Maybe you should let him. Hi, Dan, 30-year-old gay male in Dallas, Texas, with my best friend, 30-year-old trans man, uh, F to M. And we just have a question about an associate of ours. He is also a trans man, F to M, and he seems to date women, uh, heterosexual or straight women, without letting them know that he's a trans man. He says that he likes to wait a couple of months when he knows that they're emotionally attached and in love before he tells them that he is a trans man. So our question is, how soon should a trans man in particular wait to tell a straight woman uh, that he's a trans man if he is interested in being in a relationship with her and or even simply interested in having sex with her. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Evan Urquhart is a trans guy who writes for Slate on LGBTQ issues. Hey, Evan. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. So it's a pretty simple question. How long can a trans man wait or should a trans man wait to tell a cis woman that he's dating that he's trans? And I think the answer is it really depends. In this question, you have him saying until she, it was represented as being until she's already in love with him. And, and that's definitely not, not what I would suggest. Like mm-hmm. that, that sounds a little weird. It sounds a little manipulative. It sounds very, it sounds manipulative. It sounds, I would say, unhealthy for both, for both people. And it also, if I may, it seems rooted in an idea of sort of transness and disclosure and dating that's like 20 years old. You know, you used to get a lot of questions about when to tell someone you're trans because the, the sort of assumption was no one will want to date you if you're trans. And that's just not true anymore. That there are lots of people who are open to dating trans folks now in a way that wasn't true 20, 25 years ago. You know, that, that's absolutely true. And it, it also really depends on what part of the country you're in. Like, I know I know a fair number of um, of trans guys, of self trans guys living in the U.S. South. And I think they would tell you they cannot disclose on the first date or before the first date or maybe even on the second or third date because they're getting to know these this women, too. And if they get a gossip, if, if they get someone who is scandalized, mm-hmm. their whole life could come down around them. So or they could be a physical a safety danger issue too. That, yeah, there is a safety they issue. They could absolutely, yeah. Um, but I do think that when we're talking about forming the kind of like 
loving, healthy, egalitarian, romantic partnerships that um, that I think people should want, that I think that's healthy for everyone, you know, waiting two months, waiting until someone is already in love with you, that's not that's not going to be the basis for like a really strong relationship going forward. So I do think there's like a process of of disclosing that can that can be waiting until after the first or second date. Mm-hmm. I think definitely before sex is probably the best idea. Um, yeah, absolutely before sex. Yeah, I think that also um, thinking about it uh, with a corollary to something that would happen in the cis world um, in terms of if a guy has a micro penis. When is he when is he expected to disclose or mm-hmm. if a guy has had a, a genital in, injury mm-hmm. where, you know, he, he has to use a prosthetic, when would you be expecting him to disclose and not thinking of trans people as these kind of, you know, minefields or, or time bombs that's totally different from you know, from a cis experience. I think that's really valid. And we've talked about this in the context of, you know, disclosing that you're HIV positive, disclosing that you're kinky, disclosing that you're poly. And sometimes there's so much prejudice that sort of rolls around those issues that I think it's legit to let somebody get to know you a little bit, like one or two dates, like you said, before you tell them this thing about yourself that they may have a prejudicial attitude about because then they have to weigh their prejudices against the person that they've come to know. I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I think waiting three months, six months until someone's in love with you when you have allowed them to make an assumption about you that is not true because, you know, most people who present as male are cis and it's not a reasonable assumption to think that this male presenting person with you is cis and to let that person then fall in love with you or for that person to let you fall in love with them and to woo you without disclosing with that, you know, that assumption being allowed to be made is kind of a deception a passive deception, but a deception nonetheless. And that, as you said, Evan, is not the grounds for a loving, stable, committed relationship going forward. Yeah, it's indicating that you don't really trust that person. It's indicating that you're not really participating in the process of making yourself gradually a little more vulnerable to someone that, like, for most people, that's what that's what love is. Can we keep you on the line for another couple of questions? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Dan. I am a heteroflexible cis female and I have you know I've it's always been difficult for me to come um, and I've recently discovered I haven't told anyone including my boyfriend this but while he's going down on me if I close my eyes and imagine someone sucking my dick and I don't have a dick I don't I mean, I I have thought about what it'd be like to, like, have sex with a woman with a strap-on. I think that'd be hot, but I don't consider myself, you know, trans, obviously. I'm comfortable as a woman, but I don't know. This has kind of confused me, the fact that, like, it's... uh, I've discovered that it's a really big turn-on for me to imagine someone sucking my cock when I'm... When I'm a, a woman and I am comfortable as a woman, I, I don't know. What does that mean? Does that mean something? Does it matter if it means something? Do a lot of people feel this way? Yeah, man, this one is is really interesting. Um, I don't think I'm qualified to say whether a lot of cis people fantasize about having the genitalia of the opposite sex. That's that's not uh, that's not a question that I've looked into empirically. I will say that a lot of um, trans people, myself included, uh, kind of start maybe from some of this, you know, sexual uh, 
fetishy, only in the bedroom imagination um, stuff and, you know, kind of go on to explore kind of what does this mean? Um, and I think that that would be sort of a natural, a natural thing if you're really, really turned on by the idea of having a dick and you've always thought of yourself as a woman. Like, I don't think there's any harm in saying like, hey, is it possible that I might be uh, genderqueer? Is it possible that I might be transmasculine? Is it possible that I might be trans? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that, you know, like genitals are are part of sex and having ideas about genitals should be probably the most natural uh, fetish in the world. So I, I really wouldn't necessarily like worry about it too much. Or, I mean, I think maybe trying to talk about it, trying to incorporate it into your um, outside your head sex life would be would be a great place to start. Yeah, and, and there's lots of things that could be at play here. It could be the first step toward genderqueer or trans, as, as, as you said, Evan. I also think that there's such a huge zap put on women's heads about their genitals and their genitals being dirty. Uh, you know, people have vaginas, their genitals being dirty or smelly. And also at the same time, all this cultural messaging about how dicks are for sucking. And if you have this disconnect during oral where you're as a woman uh, with a vagina, with a you know, someone going down on you and you have this like weird disassociative disconnect around your entitlement to oral pleasure. I imagine for some women imagining in that moment, okay, it's not my pussy that's being eaten. It's my cock that's being sucked can help them like leap over that shit that that's piled up on women about their genitals because men are supposed to get their dick sucked dicks are for sucking um and if you know i'm uncomfortable with my pussy being eaten if i can just like play this little mental game where i'm like you know he is sucking my dick maybe that helps free you up yeah and and certainly the idea that like men are there for taking and receiving pleasure and women's job is much more to be giving um, pleasure and, and stuff is, I think, another thing that can be kind of mapped onto genitals and, and playing a different role in sex and kind of stuff. But just continue to let it go. Can, can continue to explore this. Don't, don't, don't hesitate to uh, imagine whatever you need to imagine or enjoy imagining during sex to get you there or get you off. It's all okay. It's all legitimate. And it may have some deeper meaning, uh, you know, as, as you unpacked, Evan, or it may be some, you know, patch uh, around cultural messaging or coding that that's helping you like relax and enjoy yourself. Whatever it is, it's okay. Whatever it is, it's yours. Definitely. And it's deeper meanings will emerge in time. But yeah, enjoy. if there are any, you know, I would listen to this question. I was thinking of, uh, you know, my gay friends in their twenties and forgive me, my gay friends in their twenties for, for letting this out of the bag. But so many of them like to have their butts called pussies. When they're having sex, which was like not a thing when I was a gay man in my 20s. If you called some gay dude's butt, you know, his ass a pussy while you were fucking it, that would probably be the end of that butt sex session. But now that's like apparently super hot for a lot of gay guys in their 20s. I don't think it means they all want to have vaginas where their buttholes are. But no, probably not. Something about the symbolism and the gendered language and the, the power dynamics at play in that gendered language that they find sexy and freeing, maybe in the same way that you find thinking of uh, your clit as a dick in that moment that your boyfriend's going down and you sexy and freeing. People are a mystery. Makes sense to me. Gender is an incredibly charged area in, our, in all of our lives, and it having an erotic tension makes perfect sense. 
So, so Evan, speaking of gender being a charged area in our lives, erotically, I wanted to, to touch base with you about an article of yours that I am frequently citing that you wrote for Slate in April of 2015 with the headline, Straight Talk About Junk, Why the Terms Lesbian and Gay Are Linguistically Insufficient, which I think is a terrible headline, but it's a great piece. Um, I, I, I call it the, the hot dog sushi article. Yeah, the hot dog sushi article. It is illustrated with a large picture of sushi and a hot dog. Um, and, and what keeps coming up, I have been getting this question for 20 years, 25 years, is people being told that they are transphobic because they're not attracted to someone uh, because they have a penis, not because they're a trans woman who didn't get bottom surgery, but they're just not into dicks or into, uh, in the case of some trans men, they hear about this a lot less, but I have heard from straight guys or, or gay guys who've been told they're transphobic if they aren't attracted to uh, trans men who haven't had bottom surgery, if they're not attracted to somebody with a vagina. And you, your article makes this point that maybe we need the, the terms uh, phallophile and vaginophile too. And it's okay to have a preference around genitalia. And it doesn't necessarily make you transphobic if you have a preference for partners with penises or partners with vaginas. Am I accurately summarizing your article? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, especially in the case of, um, you know, for me, if I meet someone and I'm like really attracted to her, my mind is going towards her genitals uh, to put a little curtain around that. Um, I, you know, that is that is the thing that I am focused. I am focused on acts that involve that. And if that is really at the core of your sexuality is acts that involve those genitals, if that's what you're fantasizing about when you meet someone and you're kind of vibing with them, like, I don't think that that's something that is, I mean, it's certainly got to be the most natural thing in so wait, the world. It's like, wait, I got to call, I got, I got to stop and ask you a follow-up question. So you're, you're a trans guy and you meet somebody and yes. you know, you're yes. a- attracted to her and for yes. you, it's really crucial that there is a vagina. You're not a trans guy who's attracted to women with penises. Is that what you're saying? I mean, so this, I think also, this is really important because like I haven't actually had the experience of being really in the moment attracted to a trans woman. And I think if I was having that experience, I would want to at least take a moment to not just shut it down completely and Mm -hmm. say like, Hey, can I make my brain do like a different thing? And can that start to feel sexy too? So, I mean, I do think that like a part of not being transphobic is like having a kind of theoretical openness. If I ever come across a trans person who I'm feeling really attracted to, I'm not just going to immediately slam the door and say, ew, disgusting, Mm -hmm. as my only and first reaction. Um, And, you know, as a trans person um, in the trans community, you know, we know a lot of people who are currently dating trans people who said they would never date a trans person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from our perspective, saying, I don't think I could ever do that isn't always a perfect predictor of whether you really could ever get into that if you were experiencing that kind of flirty, sexy energy in the moment. And I encourage people to take that tack all the time, uh, to, to be open. You know, sometimes our desires, you know, I, what I like to say is we need to interrogate our desires to make sure they're our desires and not a script that was written for us by mama or the church or the culture side or somebody else. And often when we really sit with our desires and interrogate them, we discover that we have more desires than we realized and a greater capacity to experience attraction and pleasure with different types of people. But for a lot of people, the dick pussy thing is a, is a hard limit. And, you know, I, I've cited your article to, to let people off the hook because taking it, you know, hearing it from a cisgendered gay white man, uh, 
ain't enough, but there are a lot of people out there who have been told that they are transphobes if they're not attracted, you know, if they're not willing to, to, to you know, lesbians who aren't willing to suck a dick. That happens to be attached to a woman or told that that's transphobic. Is that true? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, I think, absolutely bedrock principle that no one should be having sex with anyone they aren't attracted to. They shouldn't be having a kind of sex that makes them uncomfortable. They shouldn't be forcing themselves to date or have sex with people who they're not attracted to or don't want to date for whatever reason. And even if that reason is outright explicit bigotry, that is still a bedrock principle that we um, get to. And I think the question of how those kind of social cues, um, you know, affect us are very subtle. And even if sometimes, even if they are affecting us, it's still okay to say like, I'm not interested in this. I'm not ready for this Mm -hmm. and still be an ally of, of the trans community. Absolutely. And, And, you know, people who outright bigotry is the problem. They're not, you know, somebody, they're not attracted to people because just this bigoted reason, I always look at them and say, well, that's your loss. Like, <laughs> yeah. That, you, you, you have every right to make that choice, to, to rule out whole swaths of humanity as potential romantic and sexual partners because of animus. And God, you know, okay, those people don't have to sleep with you and won't want to sleep with you, but that is ultimately your loss because you've cut out of your life potentially lots of wonderful, loving, amazingly attractive, hot, fascinating people because you're a fucking scumbag bigot. <laughs> exactly. And that's not going to be any good for the for the trans person or or other person who that's infli- that attitude is inflicted on anyway. Before we let you go, I want to read back a little bit of your your own piece to you. The the, the piece that I'm constantly citing when people are saying, oh, "I've been told it's transphobic if I won't if I'm not interested or not attracted to." And you you write about vaginophiles and phallophiles. There is no shame in it as long as it doesn't come from a place of ignorance or hate. Mature adults should be able to talk plainly about their sexuality, particularly with prospective partners, in a way that doesn't objectify or shame anyone who happens to be packing the non-preferred equipment. So as a trans person, if you encountered a cis person, how do they reject you in a way that isn't transphobic and isn't uh, shaming or objectifying? If, If they're not interested in sleeping with you because you're trans and you don't pack the equipment that they prefer. So if a, if a straight woman and I were, were flirting at a bar and, you know, we're starting to talk and, and maybe it comes out that I'm trans or, or maybe, you know, she's flirting a little bit, but she kind of realizes that I'm trans and she says, you know, I'm just such a cockhound. Like, that would be totally fine. <laughs> if she's, if she's going to say, like, you know, like, this is the kind of sex I really enjoy in a way that's kind of positive and isn't like, you, never you, but like, this is the thing that I like. Like, I would absolutely, like, enjoy the honesty probably share a laugh and kind of no harm, no foul. Okay. Well, that's how it works with Evan. Doesn't it follow that that works the same way with everyone, but it's good to hear how to do this in a way that's constructive and non-shamey and non-objectify and non-transphobic. But it is possible to, to say no to anyone without being a bigot about anything. Absolutely. Uh, can I mention one other thing? Oh, absolutely. Please. Yeah. So um, I think that there are... I just wanted to mention quickly um, strap-ons and prosthetics and, and whether or not they're like as good or, or, you know, very similar to the real thing. And again, this doesn't go for the person who's going to say, I'm a cockhound. Like if what you're into is, is that organ, if that organ is really charged for you, like absolutely. But I do know for an absolute fact that there are straight women who have had the experience of both 
uh, strap-ons and, you know, the genuine article. And from their perspective, like, the feeling is not different. And I think, you know, if people haven't experienced both, you kind of assume that it would really feel different. As far as I can tell, it does not. Evan Urquhart, trans guy, writes for Slate on LGBTQ issues. Thanks for jumping on the phone, Evan. I I really do enjoy reading your stuff at Slate, uh, and I appreciate you making time for the Lovecast today. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I'm 35, married for five years with a newborn. I'm a very recent listener to your show, and I can honestly say that it has changed my way of thinking. Hearing you talk and listening to your callers has shown me that I'm not wrong or dishonest for having thoughts about other women. Hearing your perspective has finally given me the confidence to speak to my wife about the possibilities of opening up our marriage. I say possibly because I'm not even sure that is where I want to go. I just know that I want something different. I'm still attracted to her and enjoy sex with her. It is most definitely vanilla, but recently we have been talking about toys and fantasies and such. I don't think I have any kinks and she hasn't admitted to any yet, but I can't wait to explore that more with her. My wife is my best friend. I like to be with her and I love her. I want to spend my life next to this woman. She was a virgin when we got married and I'm still the only man she's ever been with. This is not a problem for her as I have asked her multiple times if she is happy with her decision to wait or if she might have some regrets. She tells me that she is perfectly content with her decision, but I know my wife. I know the religious background she comes from, and I know that that still dictates a lot of her actions and views on life. Neither of us are believers in any faith anymore, but that shit lingers. She believes that admitting this would hurt me. I think that deep down, if she was free enough and knew it wouldn't hurt my feelings, that she would enjoy an open marriage. It both scares and excites me, though. I'm scared to lose her to another man. I'm scared that if she has a different penis in her, it may feel better and that she won't want to have sex with me. Or that it may just be something she's obligated to do. She is kind of an open-minded person. She definitely tries. But she is also very insecure about herself and will possibly take this as me not being attracted to her anymore. Since I started listening to your show, we have had some amazingly honest talks about exploring more things together. What excites me the most, though, is the thought of other people becoming involved. Swinging or a threesome. I have no idea how to bring this up to her. I started talking about us going to a sex club. Not to have sex, but just to flirt. She seemed kind of excited by the prospect. I have a small suspicion that she would be down for something like this, but if I go by the past evidence, then I'd have to say even bringing it up would do some serious damage to our marriage. So my question for you is how could I bring this up without really messing things up? Also about her being a virgin, should I just believe her or maybe keep asking her? I feel like if she knew it wasn't going to hurt my feelings, she'd be honest. And the thing about it is I kind of want her to be with another man. As scary as that is, and maybe it's just some fucked up way of validating her love for me, but there it is. You say you're a recent listener. If you were a long time Savage Lovecast listener, you would have heard me in the past go off on guys who want to open their marriages or open their relationships with a newborn at home, which is the wrong time. The one time I think it is just not okay to raise the subject of really changing the terms of your long-term committed relationship. Married five years, you have a newborn infant at home. And a wife who you describe as perhaps a little insecure. Now is not the fucking time to broach the subject of opening the marriage up. Even if that's what you want over the long term, fine. You can keep that to yourself just for the moment. Not to be deceptive, not to edit yourself, but out of consideration for your wife's position right now. What she's just gone through 
bringing a brand new human being into the world. It is hormonally challenging. It puts people all over the place emotionally. It makes people wonder about their place in the world and their primacy to this other person with whom they created this brand new human being. So yeah, now is not the time to tell the wife you want to open the relationship up. And why is it not the time? Because generally I'm a fan of being honest, using your words, telling your partner what you want, what you're interested in, what you're thinking about. But newborn in the house is a time when people feel very insecure, very needy, very dependent. And if somebody gave birth to that child, emotionally really raw and ragged and probably physically raw and ragged and still recovering. And a person needs to feel safe and secure at that moment, at that high stress moment, that things aren't going to change, that there is a, a firm foundation on which they, the relationship, the parenting, all of that is on a very firm foundation. And things are not now for the moment being negotiated or renegotiated. So I've seen this come up in, in other venues. Other advice columnists have tackled this subject, this very subject recently, of the father of a newborn infant wanting to suddenly open the relationship. Maybe there's something about becoming a dad that instills a little bit of panic, a little bit of FOMO. I'm here from the future to tell you dads that there is plenty of time to get to openness. Newborn infant at home, not the time. You are, however, having a conversation right now that sounds lovely and sounds like you're making progress and you two are discussing toys and fetishes and kinks. You're still sexually interested in your wife and you're really laying out something that I think is important to affirm when there's a brand new infant in the house, that you're still sexual beings. You're still sexually attracted to one another. There are sexual adventures that you two can still have together as parents doing that relay race thing, which is having a newborn in the house. Somebody's always got to be on. And there'll be times when you guys can be off and then get off together, but newborns are a huge stressor. So wait, you don't need to have this conversation right now. And when you say that you think the only reason your wife isn't telling you that she might be up for sleeping with another man or curious about sleeping with another man, it isn't because you don't necessarily believe her. It's that you don't want to believe her. That's not the answer that you want. The answer that you want is she might be interested in sleeping with another guy because as you get to at the end of your calls, you finally admit it toward the end. You're interested in knowing that she slept with another guy or seeing her sleep with another guy, which is a fine thing to want. But you can't then, knowing that you want that, point a finger at your wife and insist she must be lying when she doesn't tell you that that's what she wants to. It's entirely possible that that isn't something that she wants. Now, Maybe it's something that you'll want down the road as you continue to go on these sexual adventures together, as you continue to have these conversations. Anything is possible. Most people you meet in the organized swinging scene are older, married, straight couples with children, not newborns, older children, children in their tweens, children in their teens, adult children who are grown and out of the house. Those are the people you meet in organized swinging not people with an infant at home, unless they were involved in organized swinging before they had the infant. Sometimes you meet those, but mostly people who are together a very long time, monogamous a very long time, parents often together a very long time before they get involved in organized swinging. Keep listening to the show and keep having this open and honest conversation with your wife about your sex life. 
And a time will come, give it a year or two, when things are a little less stressful, when it's not quite the relay race it is now, and broach the subject of what she wants over the long haul, what she wants in the future, what you want in the future. And you could see an open relationship or you could see the possibility of you two having a threesome or swinging if she was interested and open to that too. But right now, right now, keep your mouth about openness at least shut. But keep talking about everything else. Hi, Dan. Straight, late 20s from girl from East Coast here. Uh, I just had a question about what to do when your partner has a ton of shit. Um, I'm engaged to someone we've been with. I've been with him for four years. We moved in together two years ago. And I wouldn't say he's a hoarder, but he definitely has a habit of keeping things. He has about like 15 million motorcycle magazines. And I'm not sure what the best way to minimize this stuff is because I don't think his parents have ever told him to clean his room. They've never had a garage sale in the 29 years they've lived at their home. Um, So I was discreetly thinking that I I could put all of his magazines in a bag and recycle them when he wasn't here because he works um, in another state uh, during the week. So I did that once, but do I need to do that periodically? So I just need to like go through these magazines because I feel like I'll never get rid of anything unless I throw it away. (laughs) And I know it's bad and I know I should ask him. um, But I, I mean, we had trash out. It was a lamp that I didn't want anymore because it doesn't work. And so I looked out and I was like, Oh, where's the lamp? And he was like, Oh, I took it back. I put it in my garage. Like he can't even throw out a lamp that doesn't work. The problem, Dan, what should I do? I'm conflicted because I am a pack rat. I'm not a hoarder. I don't save every issue of the New York times that lands on the porch. I'm very good about getting things out of the house, but there are things I hold on to that other people probably wouldn't hold on to. I have the scrap of paper on which the guy I dated in Berlin for a year, 30 years ago, wrote his address down on, and I know where that is. And I like having that in my possession. I like having that thing. I don't know why. If Terry were to find that and throw it away, I'd be really upset, even though it's a scrap of paper, even though that person doesn't live there anymore, even though, even though, even though I want that thing. So listen, you talk about throwing away your fiance's motorcycle magazines when he wasn't looking. That was very triggering for me. I got very upset because I have all my treasured crapola all over my house. And if somebody started going through it and randomly throwing things away without talking to me, I would be upset. Yeah, you need to talk to him, not to me. You need to use your words. You need to go to this man and say, I have a concern. I have a concern that you can't throw anything away and I'm not willing to live in a trash heap. So throwing things away is a skill that you need to develop and perhaps demonstrate to my satisfaction so that I have an assurance that when we do live together, we can do things like discard a broken lamp that we can get rid of and recycle motorcycle magazines that are of no value and that you are never, ever going to look at ever again in your entire life because I would like some living room in my living space. Have that convo with him. See what he says. I assure you, if when you walked into his parents' house, you were wondering whether they might be hoarders or not. They're not hoarders. When you walk into a hoarder's house, you know you're in a hoarder's house. So you need to make a distinction between the pack rat, the lovable 
pack rat with whom you can live very successfully for decades and the hoarder. I am a pack rat. Terry, who is not, has lived successfully with me for decades. Seems to me that if he is not a hoarder and his parents are not hoarders, just pack rats, you should be able to make your peace with that and you should both be able to compromise on just how many of whatever, motorcycle magazine, whatever, he can have in the house long term. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I was calling, Dan, to find out if you could give me your insight into this rather uncomfortable place I find myself. Last weekend, I got a text from my father that said, Mom found an earring in the hot tub. It's not yours, but if she asks, please say it is, and I'll explain it to you in person. I appreciate your help in this deception, but it is the best thing to do. Part. And a picture of the earring. Okay, question mark? I said, okay. Then I thought about it, and I responded, rewind, I do want more info, and I don't want to be in the middle of this. Without any judgment of what's going on, we're all human, I am uncomfortable lying about this. I value a good relationship with each of you, and that means I don't want to be involved in the deception. He then said, okay, no problem. A friend left it. I thought it was easier to have it never happen. It's not a crisis. I just wanted to avoid something misunderstandable. Forget I ever asked. And I said, okay. And then he came back and said, okay, the mystery's resolved. No deception. Totally forget I ever mentioned it. And I'm having a hard time forgetting that it was ever mentioned. Um, and when I saw my mom recently, I felt different towards her. And I felt like I had the secret. And um, there's so many things that are wrong about this in the sense that I never should have been contacted um, or dragged into it. And also this feeling of I wish it could be forgotten and unsaid, but it's not. Um, my parents have been together for 40 some years. So I'm just wondering what to do with this. Like, how do I hold this when I feel like I've lost a little bit of respect, maybe for both of them? Because I'm assuming that my mom is happy to believe whatever story he gave and continue with some sort of head in the sand style. In this line of work, you sometimes hear from people whose moms or dads turned a blind eye to abuse, to sexual abuse or, or physical abuse, because recognizing it, because admitting to others that they saw it or that it happened would require them to upend their lives, would require them to leave the shitty second husband or divorce the shitty first wife who's emotionally or physically abusive. And so they pretend that's not happening, pretend not to see it and gaslight their kids. This is incredibly traumatizing. This destroys relationships. It destroys people. This ain't that. This is mom and dad together 40 years. You have no idea what's going on in their relationship sexually. You have no idea whether your parents still have a sexual connection at all. And your mom maybe wants to turn a blind eye because to see it, to recognize it, to name it, to discuss it with each other or with their kids would leave them in a position where they felt like they had to turn their lives upside down. Sometimes in a long, 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 long-ass term relationship, people change and sometimes they change in ways where they must part ways. And sometimes people change in ways where accommodations are made. Best case scenario, the accommodations are discussed. The accommodations are made uh, as an active, mutually agreed to choice and both people have buy-in. Sometimes the accommodations are made in silence. Sometimes the accommodations are made at the margins 
because somebody is, if you're listening to the show, somebody is doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane. Sometimes people do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane. And the other person in the marriage knows they're doing that. And they appreciate not being involved in the decision, not being told. They appreciate being able to live in a kind of a gray zone where they can suspend their disbelief. And they appreciate consciously or subconsciously, articulated or not articulated, the effort their partner goes to protect them from the truth. For all you know, that's the case in your parents' marriage. 40 years they've been together. A lot of relationships of three, four, sometimes two decades, the sex is gone. And one person unilaterally ended the sexual element of the relationship. And the other person is put in a position where they can get their needs met discreetly or not so discreetly if they're dragging people home and dropping them in the hot tub at the ranch and stay in the relationship, stay in the marriage. Every marriage is a mystery to everyone who's not a part of it. It's awful the position your father put you in because now you know just enough about what's going on inside their marriage that you are, you feel complicit, you feel involved. And I want to absolve you. I want to say you're actually not involved. I want to encourage you to stuff this down the memory hole. You can if you're concerned that your mother is being abused or gaslit or is miserable. No, she's being lied to and is just keeping the peace because she thinks everybody else thinks their marriage is perfect and fine, but she would like out at 40 years. Have a conversation with your mother just broadly and generally about her, dad, whether they're happy, whether she's happy, your concern for her. Do you want her to have a wonderful, fulfilling life even now and touch base? And you can touch base with your fucking father too, who should never have involved you in this way and tell him that that was not okay. And you've been left feeling really concerned for your mother. But then be forewarned, you start pulling those threads. You're likely to find out even more about your parents' marriage that may leave you feeling more uncomfortable or more involved. You ask your dad, like, what was up with that earring? What was up with that? other woman in your hot tub. What the fuck are you doing? Are you cheating on mom? And when your dad turns to you and says, 20 years ago, your mother told me she was done with sex. I haven't had sex for 15 years. I haven't had sex for 18 years. I met somebody in a similar circumstance. We meet each other's needs so we can each stay in our own marriages and continue to love and support the people that we are with for the long haul, but that the sexual element of those relationships have died. So yeah, I'm having sex with somebody else and your mother doesn't know. Then what are you going to do with that? Would your mother want to know? Esther Perel in The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, writes about the burden of knowing. When you know somebody is having an affair and you feel this impulse to go tell the person who's being cheated on, you are giving them the burden of knowing. Not everybody wants to know or needs to know or will benefit from knowing. What if your mother at 40 years into this marriage is physically dependent on your father for care? And then she knows and feels compelled to go. And your father, despite this small carve out, is a decent and loving and caring husband. And of course, when somebody's cheating, everybody wants to round that person up to monster who never loved the person that they cheated on. Otherwise, you couldn't do that. Sometimes people cheat to stay. Sometimes people do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane because it is not in their best interest, but also or exclusively in the best interest of the partner who is the victim of the cheating. You really need to think all this shit through. 
convo with your mom about her life, whether she's happy, see where it goes. And risk a more specific combo with your dad about how unfair that was and how it's left you wondering and left you feeling very concerned for your mom, for their marriage, and then brace yourself for what you're likely to hear. This is for the caller in episode 605 with the obnoxiously snoopy mother. If you must take the coward's way, you could always have a family dinner at your mother's house, bar over computer, and log them out yourself. Just a thought. Hey, Dan. I'm a transgender man, and I'm calling in response to episode 605. There was a lesbian that called in, and, you know, she she didn't want to sleep with transgender women with a penis. I actually, like, kind of agree with your point, like, you know, because personally, I don't want people sleeping with me if they don't like my genital configuration, but that's not why I'm calling. I think that your point was fine, but I think you might have missed a key vignette of information on there. She had said she's more than willing to sleep with transgender men that don't have penises yet or like cis women who don't have penises. And that's great. That might be her thing, but that might be why her friends are picking up and calling her like trans misogynist and like being bigoted about things. There's kind of a history of lesbians who want to date us trans men who don't see us as men, especially when we're like beginning our transition and it's a little more ambiguous and that it's kind of like, you know, one of the situations where they look at us and they're like, well, you're not really a man. You're just a really butch woman. I've never gotten so many like women hitting on me from the lesbian community as when I started taking tea in that first year. So that's kind of a thing. And it's kind of a crappy thing because it's a way to undermine your gender for real. And, you know, they might be sensing her friends might be sensing that and also thinking with a more expanded conversation from her that she doesn't really see transgender women as women either. For her, the gender might be reduced down to sexual genital characteristics, and she's just not really grasping the difference that your junk is not your gender. So I think your answer was fine, but I think that there should be maybe hopefully a little more exploration in like why a lesbian would even want to sleep with a transgender man because they're men. Hi, this is a call in relation to uh, episode 605, the caller who was looking for a quiet bed to have some interesting sex on. Um, And I highly recommend a latex mattress. They're nice and springy. They've got a lot of good bounce, but because they don't have actual springs in, there's no creaking at all, uh, provided, of course, that you have a good solid frame underneath it. Uh, Good luck and happy fucking. Before we leave it, I want to let you know that I am uh, working on a new project with an award-winning documentary team that aims to break down stereotypes and stigmas by showcasing real couples therapy with real couples. You know, when we're struggling in relationships with our issues, sometimes we feel like our issues are ours alone and no one else could understand because no one else is going through what we're going through. But lots of us go through the same shit. We just don't know it because we don't talk about the shit that we're going through. This is the show that's going to talk about the shit we're going through. I'm a fan of the filmmakers behind the project, and right now they're looking for more couples to be featured in this documentary series. So if you are looking for couples therapy and you are in the New York City area, check it out at CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. It's selected for the series. You would get 20 weeks of free therapy with an expert couples therapist, and by sharing your story... You might help others wrestling with similar challenges in their own relationships. To find out more, again, go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. All right, there we're going to leave it. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. 
Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Evan Urquhart on Twitter at E underscore URQ. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.